This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So you might have noticed that this, <laughs> this lecture is called Baptized Imagination 5. Yes, this is the fifth one I've done in this series, and you might be wondering, really, really, part five, when is she going to be done with this? How much more could there be to say about the imagination? Actually, lots more, <laughs> but um, I think this is going to be the last one for, for a while anyway. Um, but yeah, five, five lectures on this topic is a lot. Um, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day about different, a different topic, um, and the host just threw in this like throwaway comment where he said something like, I'm kind of sick of hearing about the Christian imagination. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, but it was what, what he said afterwards that kind of like, I, I won't say like ruffled me, but um, maybe go, okay, I think this is why we actually need to talk about the imagination. He said, I'm sick about, of hearing about the Christian imagination. Christianity isn't about imagination. It's about incarnation. Um, and if you've been following this series at all, you'll know that one of the main things I've been saying over and over again is imagination is about incarnation. <laughs> um, and, and one of the, one of the key definitions of imagination that I've been working with, um, comes from George MacDonald, who defines it this way. He says the imagination is that faculty which gives form to thought. Not necessarily uttered form, but form capable of being uttered in shape or sound or in any mode upon which the senses can lay hold. That sounds like something physical, something tangible. So in other words, the imagination takes something that isn't immediately present to our senses and then gives it a shape capable of being apprehended by the senses, something that we can understand in more tangible terms, and then that leads, at its best, when it's working properly, um, to helping us better understand the abstract thing that wasn't immediately apprehendable to us. Um, and as, as I get into this, I also want to remind you all, because I know that not all of you have been following this series with bated breath, um, is an- another important definition of imagination is that it's our meaning-making faculty. Uh, C.S. Lewis called it our organ of meaning. So just like we have, you know, livers and kidneys and hearts, we have this organ of meaning, and that's our imagination. Um, And another way to describe this meaning-making function of the imagination is to describe it as our integrative faculty. It's a faculty that takes all the information that's coming at us through our senses, through our intuitions, our memories, our rationality, all of those ways that we get information... um, and information is an unhelpful word maybe, but it takes all of those pieces of stuff and integrates them into a meaningful whole. That's how we understand the world around us. So with that, kind of those definitions sort of in mind, um, 
And if you're if you're interested in more on that, part one of this series is on our podcast. You can go back and listen. That's where I did a lot more of that definitional work. Um, I do want to actually take seriously uh, what I think this podcast person was getting at, because I he's not the only person. He's not. Um, he's definitely not the only person recently to suggest that the church, especially the evangelical church in the West, has a problem with imagination, is facing, even people will say, facing a crisis of imagination. In 2013, so 10 years ago, the theologian Kevin Van Hooser, in a chapter that he had contributed to a book that was about the imagination of C.S. Lewis, he said, we're suffering from imaginative malnutrition in the church. And now, 10 years later, this book... um, has just come out, just come out this year, uh, from literary scholar Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, it's called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. So in, this book is precisely about that topic, the whole thing. Um, and she doesn't, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor doesn't argue, doesn't say that the church doesn't have an imagination. She actually says she describes all, a lot of features of what makes up what she calls the evangelical social imaginary. Um, and she shows that a lot of those features of the social imaginary of ev- the evangelical church aren't maybe as Christian or as biblical as we might think. She uses the word crisis in her title. So apparently the malnutrition that Van Hooser talked about 10 years ago hasn't gone away. Maybe it's gotten worse. So I want to offer a brief roadmap of where we're going to go tonight. First, I want to look a little bit more deeply at the nature of this crisis that people are talking about. Um, what What is this crisis of imagination? What's going on there? And then I'm going to look at some ideas for recovery. How do we recover or rehabilitate our imagination? Um, and then finally, I want to turn back to what maybe is sort of an enigmatic title, subtitle, prophet, poet, seer, sage, especially looking at the idea of a prophet to wrap to wrap this up. So that's where we're headed. So first, what is the nature of this crisis? And I'm going to set out a few things that I think describe it, and they, they overlap and interconnect, so it's a bit hard to tease them apart, but um, and they're not by any means exhaustive. Uh, but I think they're helpful in thinking about what is this, what are people talking about when they talk about this crisis of imagination? And there's there's three things that I want to focus on. One is language, the second is integration, and the third is attention. So language, integration, and attention. So the first one is language. And this is basically the point of uh, Karen Swallow-Pryor's whole book. So if you want to delve into this more. This is available for you wherever books are sold. Um, and uh, so she talks a lot about the nature of language, how language actually shapes how we understand and engage with or fail to engage with reality. So she writes this. She says, reality as we conceptualize it is shaped by the habits of our language, which includes the things we have words for and the things we don't have words for. This is where categories and labels, so ubiquitous in the modern age and helpful in many ways, also leave out aspects of reality that the terms leave out. But this is also why the language of metaphor is so helpful, because metaphor and all kinds of figurative language points to connections and similarities without closing borders. 
the reason I included the part where she talks about the language of metaphor, that's the language that the imagination is really working with. Um, and we're going to pay, pay attention to metaphor a lot this evening. But the point is that language, again, shapes how we understand and engage with reality, and language matters a lot. Um, and so uh, in her book, Swallow Pryor argues that she kind of describes ways in which the church has followed culture in embracing uses of language that, that really come out of enlightenment rationalism and scientific and the scientific method um, and has kind of minimized figurative language, that language uh, of the imagination. And at one point in the book, she gives an example of reading, um, reading a piece of literature. She actually looks at a scene in Pride and Prejudice. Um, if you're familiar, it's where Lizzie gets her petticoats muddy. It's like a tiny little scene, but she gets super judged for it um, by other people. She looks at that scene, and um, Karen Swallow-Power kind of like walks through that scene, reading it literarily, like she's been trained as a literary scholar. And that's, that means using a range of interpretive tools besides just literal the literal words that, oh, her petticoat got muddy, someone gasped when she walked in the room, or whatever. Um, and then she says this, uh, at the end of her analysis, uh, Swallow Pryor says this, if only we were more attuned to seeing and reading the world of the real in this way. But centuries of immersion in literalism, as opposed to literariness, make such layered and nuanced readings of the world more elusive. So her point is that one of the ways that um, maybe our language is in crisis or has experienced loss is that we've lost the vocabulary of metaphor and symbol to a large degree. We've lost the language of allegory, of looking at words and phrases and seeing multiple meanings and layers of meanings at once. Another way uh, of saying this would be to follow uh, the philosophers who talk about um, the modern age being disenchanted and saying that our and, and say that our language has become disenchanted, and so our reality has also become disenchanted. Our language has become limited. Um, and this is true inside and outside of the church. I think this is just a feature of, of our um, post-industrial culture. Um, inside the church, I think that's complicated because uh, we get nervous nervous about, if I start talking about like multiple meanings and stuff like that, we get nervous about the slippery slope of relativism. And so when, when a poet, like the poet uh, Malcolm Geith says something mysterious and magical like this, words are not dry little counters, each betokening one meaning. We have to let the words be music, and in that music, to let them play counter melodies to one another. We hear something like that, and we get nervous. Like, uh, I don't know, I think it's just better if like one word, one meaning, we'll just, we'll just stick with that. Um, so we shy away from that kind of metaphorical, symbolic language. On the one hand... But on the other hand, there are lots of metaphors and symbols that we use routinely in, in culture, in the church. Um, that's actually how language works. We can't really escape it. Um, but this is also an area where we have a problem. The metaphors and the symbols that we do have and that we do use are so familiar that in a lot of ways they've lost their power. Or they're so familiar that we've forgotten that they're metaphors at all. Um, think for a second, about the phrase born again. That's a, that's a phrase we use in the evangelical church. A born again Christian. It's so familiar that secular pollsters will use it to designate groups of people. These are born again Christians. Um, 
But what? Oh, like, just think about that for a second. It's a weird and shocking phrase. It was weird and shocking when Jesus used it for the first time. Uh, he tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man re-enter his mother's womb when he is old? And that might be, you might say like, Nicodemus, it's a metaphor, like, come on. But actually, Nicodemus is doing some important work there. He's, when we talk about birth, we're talking about wombs and mothers and labor pains and bodily fluids. Like, it's a very earthy, physical image that Jesus is using to describe something that is pretty extraordinary and unfamiliar and that you need to use kind of long theological sounding words to describe otherwise we call it the holy spirit's work of regeneration for example doesn't quite have the same punch as born again (laughs) um but now we hear it and we hardly hear it because it's become so familiar and i think there's two reasons that are sort of paradoxical why first it's so familiar it just we just hear it and don't hear it it's overly familiar but second i think we don't hear it because we've been distanced from the literal thing that it's talking about for us in in, for most of us birth has become an intensely private thing that happens in sequestered medical contexts and only certain people get to witness it and many people never get a chance to because you're not part of you know you're not giving birth or attending someone who's giving birth um i think in different parts of the world at different times it was a different situation um But in our context, the metaphor has been cut off from its literal anchor, the thing that makes it punchy and makes it work as a metaphor. And so it's become this sort of abstraction that we're just kind of just washes over us without any of the power that it had when Jesus first used it. So uh, Swallow Pryor's book is filled with examples like this, and, and she analyzes languages and images that are familiar and over-familiar pieces, like pieces of furniture in the room of the evangelical imagination. So I won't give any more examples in, uh, at this point. Um, but if you're interested, she, she analyzes some really interesting things that I think we take for granted very often. Um, but yeah, so part of her goal and part of the goal tonight is to think about language again, like let's actually look at it. Let's draw attention to it. And what is it doing in shaping the way that we perceive reality? Um, in the article that I mentioned earlier, or the chapter, um, Kevin Van Hooser says something similar when he spells out a major metaphor that many people who call themselves Christians are actually living by. And it's probably not even conscious. It's probably a subconscious um, metaphor that the people are living by. He says this, If sociologists are to be believed, an even greater percentage of Christians live by quite a different metaphor, namely the moral metaphor of God as Father Christmas. Moral therapeutic deism indoctrinates its adherents to think of God not as worrying about their sanctification, but rather whether they've been naughty or nice. It's no good professing to be a Christ follower if your imagination is captive to the image of God as a moral therapist or a celestial handyman whom we call upon only when we have a problem that needs fixing. So if the metaphor that we're working for, or we're working with for God, the way that we picture God is either Santa Claus or a therapist or a handyman or a vending machine, then, then I think we have a, I think we have 
an imagination problem. And there's a problem, actually, with the language and the metaphors that we're using. So second, um, the second maybe feature of this crisis of imagination is about integration. So remember that the imagination is our integrative faculty. And I think what the people who've <coughs> been looking at this are articulating is that in the church we're struggling with the ability to integrate word and deed. Practicing what we preach, talking the talk and walking the walk, however you want to say it. I mean, this is one of the most common, it's almost cliche, criticisms of Christians. They're hypocrites, right? They say one thing and do another, or they say all these great things and don't do, don't have anything to do with them. Um, ben Hooser says, describes this, I think, in more sympathetic terms. He says, we want to believe the Bible. We do believe it. We confess the truth of its teaching, and we're prepared to defend it but we nevertheless find ourselves unable to see our world in biblical terms. We find ourselves unable to relate the doctrines we profess to the lifestyle we practice. So maybe like the podcaster said, we do have a problem of incarnation. Before that, we actually need imagination's help. We don't need less imagination. We need more of our integrative faculty to bring word and deed together, to help us grow in integrity, integrate integration and integrity come from the same source. Um, Swallow Pryor also raises this issue of incarnation, of, of lived in bodily reality, lived out reality of faith. She says, if the Protestant Reformation was over the word as written, over who can and should read and interpret it, then this reckoning of, of evangelicalism today concerns the word as it has been incarnated. If the Reformation was over the truth revealed in Scripture, then this evangelical reckoning is over the way and the life revealed in Jesus and how the church has failed to follow and embody it. They, the word written and the word incarnated, can't be separated, of course, but the failure of the evangelical imagination is a failing to see and embody this whole. So there's a gap being recognized between belief and practice. Too often belief seems to just mean mental assent and doesn't have anything to do with the rest of life. But what what is the rest of life about? And that brings me to the third kind of aspect of this crisis um, that I've identified, and that is a crisis of attention. And I'm using the word attention, but I think I could have also used the word care, because we attend to what we care about, what we value as meaningful. And our imagination, our meaning-making faculty, is a key part of that. But I probably don't have to do very much work to convince you that we, as a culture, are struggling with an attention problem. I know I struggle with an attention problem. Um, uh, in his article, Kevin Van Hooser starts off by talking about, about this without using the word attention. He uh, talks about the good, old-fashioned, deadly sin of sloth. He describes it this way. He says, if the besetting sin of modernity is pride and inordinate confidence in know-it-all reason, then that of post-modernity is sloth, a despairing indifference to truth. And he describes, he goes further to describe what sloth is by um, citing Dorothy Sayers' uh, definition. Sloth isn't like a word that we just throw around all the time, except if you're talking about the animal. But um, maybe you talk about sloths a lot. I don't know. Um, 
So we don't, we're not as familiar. So Dorothy Sayers' um, definition is pretty helpful, and this is what it is. She just defines sloth this way. It is the sin that believes in nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. Pretty intense. Um, Another way that Van Hooser talks about sloth is he says, sloth sits still unmoved by anything real. I think what he's getting at is that the besetting sin of our age is the inability to pay attention to and to value things as meaningful. Um, and we can we can point to how technology has trained us to have habits of paying attention to things that flash and change very rapidly. Um, windows and popping up things and clips and words popping up on the screen, um, which is actually training and inattention. Um, but it's not just bad habits of zoning out, looking at screens. I think it's also the sheer volume of content that's available to us on demand at any time that is forming or deforming our attention. Whatever it's doing, it's captivating our attention. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, Pryor uh, kind of talks a lot about how the situation of, of contemporary evangelicals is, is similar in some ways to Christians before the Protestant Reformation. Um, and she says, she points out that at that time, the fact that most people were illiterate was holding them captive to the authority of an institution, the, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, which was growing more and more powerful and also corrupt at that time. So she asks, what holds evangelicals who not only can read, but have easy access to Bibles of all kinds captive today? One answer is that we suffer under a different kind of illiteracy today. Another kind of dark age created by too much information, too much disinformation and misinformation, and an inability or unwillingness to do the labor necessary to read information, the times, and ourselves better. Perhaps this kind of functional illiteracy is a crisis of the imagination. And I don't think she's, uh, she kind of is, uh, not convinced at the end, like maybe it's a crisis of the imagination. I don't think her description of this phenomenon as functional illiteracy is too severe. Um, I would actually take her point further and say just because evangelicals can read generally and have access to Bibles of all kinds, that doesn't mean we are reading the Bible or that we're reading it well, deeply, with understanding, so that it dwells in us richly. And as, as she said in the quotation earlier, uh, we don't we don't read the world around us in that way either, deeply, with understanding. Uh, we're stuck in the shallows, attending to the flashy virtual worlds of fantasy, rather than the robust works of the imagination that direct us outwards to what's really real, direct us further up and further in. Okay, so that was like a really speedy survey of sort of those three areas where I think there is a crisis of imagination. Language, integration, and attention. Um, but I think maybe that one of the best ways, that kind of, something that just kind of brings these together is a, um, is a testimony from an actual real-life person um, 
Shout out to my mom, who's in the audience, who sent me this article earlier today. Um, not today, this week. Um, and this is written by a young man uh, who just graduated from college this year. So he's a newly minted Gen Z adult. Um, and this is what he he says that I think really sums up this crisis well. He says this. Imagine that, like me, you grew up in a hurricane blitz of secularism that systematically dismantled your belief in the unseen. Even if a miracle should happen, you'd probably be too sensible or cynical to believe it. Before you hit puberty, rampant individualism forcefully placed you in a cage like a circus animal and handed you an iPhone so you could pretend you're not lonely. You use the phone, and sometimes it works. When it doesn't, you grow anxious and put up more walls. So you're never challenged. No, never invited to attend to the depth of the living God. The postmodern pressure of not pressuring keeps people from asking hard things. Meanwhile, you're living virtually. Entertainment is the unrivaled deity in your life. Algorithms of billion-dollar companies have monopolized your attention, your worship. Sometimes you try to escape this vicious cycle, but with the speed of life, it's like trying to land flat-footed after jumping out of a moving sports car. Christian pretty much means not any of those things above. And you know this, so you do your best, but honestly, none of those things sounds that terrible to you. They're sort of inevitable. Ultimately, it's hard for you to to imagine being a Christian. I think this sums up this crisis of integration, of isolation, sloth, passivity, inattention, or misdirected attention. And this is someone, he's not talking about before he was a Christian. He would have described himself as a Christian in this state. Um, But there's a There's a gap. There's knowledge that this lonely, distracted life isn't what being a Christian means. But what does it mean? And not just what does it mean, but what does it look like? Here's the crisis. Ultimately, it's hard for you to imagine being a Christian. And I think it's it's really important and interesting that this young man, his name's J.T. Reeves, he uses the language of imagination and the language of idolatry. He says, entertainment is the unrivaled deity deity in your life. Algorithms of billion-dollar companies have monopolized your attention, your worship. Um, There's uh, an lecture on our database um, from the former Liberty worker, Andrew Fellows, which he gave in 2002, which is probably the year JT was born. Um, And and Andrew Fellows would agree, I think. Uh, he, He argues that works of fantasy which he sees as being provided by pop pop culture and mass media, what JT calls entertainment. These are the contemporary graven images that the Bible commands God's people not to worship. Um, I think in many ways this crisis of imagination is is a crisis that has to do with idolatry. So that's going to keep coming up tonight, I think. So if this is the problem, if this is the crisis, then what, what are some solutions? It isn't just hard to be a Christian, it's hard to imagine being a Christian. We need to recover our imaginations to rehabilitate that atrophied organ. Um, Andrew Fellows says that responding to the real as it really is, is the beginning of worship. We need to wake up to what's real. We need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened and enlivened. 
And I think I find this kind of encouraging that this isn't this isn't a new problem. <laughs> I don't know why I thought maybe that should be discouraging, but I actually find it kind of encouraging. Um, and uh, way back earlier in the series, I talked about um, a definition of what imaginative work does that comes from the Romantic poets Samuel Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth. They were writing 200 years ago. And they explicitly said that the purpose of their lyrical ballads, these poems that they were writing, this was the purpose. What They are to excite a feeling analogous to the supernatural by awakening the mind's attention to the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us, an inexhaustible treasure, but for which, in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes but see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. Awakening the mind's attention, exposing the lethargy of custom, that is the lethargy of habit, attempting to remove the film of familiarity and selfish selfish solicitude, that's hard to say, that is the veil or the cobwebs of familiarity and the inward turning circle of myself, myself, myself. This is the goal of these poets' imaginative work. And this is, this is what imaginative work does more generally. Um, not just these poems, these particular poems, but all kinds of imaginative work. We can think that the isolated little circle of our subjective, protected little internal experience is the sum of reality. It's really easy to get stuck in that. But works of imagination break into that and point us outside of ourselves offering us glimpses of reality, even of eternity and of transcendence at their at their best and their most powerful. So when we think about what's the solution to this crisis, how do we rehab our imagination, we're going to look at those same three aspects again, language, integration, and attention. How do we recover language? One starting place, Karen Swallow Pryor says in in her book, and this is sort of her whole purpose in her book, is to start noticing, noticing language and evaluating it. And we talked about this already. Um, she says, look for the images, metaphors, and stories that fill your imagination, your community's social imaginary, and your own cultural experience. Weigh them against the word of God. Weigh them against the truth, justice, and mercy to which he calls all his people. Weigh them against what Dante calls the love which moves the sun and all the other stars. So one way to recover languages is just start noticing it. Start noticing the images and metaphors and stories. I'm using the word language, but it could be pictures that fill your imagination. You might notice, let's do a little exercise here. You might notice, for example, what kinds of verbs do we use with the word time? Any any. Thoughts, time. We we waste time. We spend time. Pass time, lose time. Manage time. That's good. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, so a lot of those verbs, we spend time, save time, waste time, invest time, manage time, lose time, set aside time. Those verbs are all metaphorical, right? We don't. Time isn't like a thing that you can set aside on a shelf. Um, we're using metaphors when we use those verbs. So what analogy is being drawn? Where do we literally use those verbs? Yeah, with money. So this reveals a very, very high American value. Time is money. That's like 
an aphorism. We even demonstrate that value in our language. So then once we've recognized that, we can start, we can weigh that against the word of God, like um, Swallow Prior says, how does God talk about time? And we can also start imagining other verbs that we might use that could maybe help us fully recognize and participate better in reality. What if we talked about filling time or inhabiting time or befriending time, as Joshua did uh, did in his lecture a few years ago? Cultivating time. What does that do for our understanding? And how might that change how we participate and live in the reality of time? We live in time. So this is, this is where poets can help us because this is like poet's whole job. A poet's whole job is to take great delight in looking at words closely. That's not their whole job, but that's a huge part of it. Um, and uh, a poet like Malcolm Geit, who says that words are not dry little counters, um, he, talks, he has a great um, interview called Poetry Imagination's Wake Up Call that I'm not going to... Um, delve into because it's just him talking the whole time and I can't pretend I'm an old hobbit man from England who (laughs) says things in an amazing way. But if you want to check that out, highly recommend it. Poetry, Imaginations, Wake Up Call. But he talks about how we have so many analogies that come from computers and machines that actually um, end up degrading how we think about people and ourselves. Um, And he quotes uh, Isaiah in the Psalms where it says, those who make them shall be like them. Uh, so we start thinking about people and we can like reprogram people and change our software and stuff like that, which he says is an appalling and limiting analogy. Um, but how do we resist that then? And, and what Malcolm Geit says is, well, the first thing to liberate yourself from an analogy is to have more than one. And the second is to remember that it's an analogy. So I think there's sort of a paradoxical point to be made here. The first, to recover language, we we need to remember that a metaphor is a metaphor, recognize those metaphors. When we say waste time, we're using a metaphor um, to remember that an analogy is just an analogy. But we also, on the other side, need to reawaken to metaphors and figurative language and use them thoughtfully and well and creatively. I think we actually have an opportunity to revel in and explore and enjoy different similarities that we can draw with language. And that will allow words to be made fresh for us. Um, And the Bible shows us this over and over again. Um, The way that I really like how Karen Swallow Pryor says it, she says, biblical language is never cliched, but our use of it can be. We should take instruction from the fact that the Bible expresses its recurring ideas and concepts with a delicious menu of varied words and phrases. So we see this in the writing of the prophets and the poets and the wise men who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible. They use metaphor after metaphor, image after image, analogy after analogy, the whole range of figurative language and symbol that's available to us. And we see this, I mean, especially really powerfully in the prophets who are trying to recapture their audience's attention, their ear, the audience's ears have become hard of hearing their eyesight has become dimmed by the film of familiarity their attention has been misdirected Um, and the prophets do this with language they use paradox and poetry they use hyperbole they even use nonsense words sometimes Uh, they shout and cry and whisper 
They use spoken metaphors and they use symbolic action. The whole range available uh, in language and communication. So recovering language by looking at it again, by paying attention to it. This is related then to the second the second area that we talked about, about incarnation, about faith embodied. We sort of talked about this already, but um, Dorothy Sayers says this about metaphors. She says, metaphors only become dead when the metaphor is substituted for experience and the argument carried on in a sphere of abstraction without, without being at every point related to life. So that's sort of what's happened with born again, right? It's been sent off to the sphere of abstraction and not reconnected to real life. Um, and I've, I've talked a lot about incarnation in parts two and three of this series. If you want to hear way more, that those are there. Um, how do we live out what we say we believe? Um, but, but I do want to think here a little bit further about what recovering language um, that has perhaps been carried to that sphere of abstraction, what that can mean for our ability to live out reality. So walk is another one of those Christianese words that gets thrown around like born again. People, you, can, you might hear someone say something like, how's your walk with God? Um, which is a metaphor. But what is that even like, what is that even a metaphor for at this point? What, are, what, is, the, what is it grounded in? So what would happen if we re-grounded that metaphor? Literally, walking means feet on the ground on the road or on a way. So if we follow the trail of ways and roads and paths through scripture, we start finding ways and roads and paths all over the place. Maybe the biggest way in the imagination of the people of Israel in the Old Testament is the way that God made through the sea at the Exodus. Um, We see that show up again and again every time the people of Israel remember that <laughs> historical event. They'll talk about like God making a way in the sea or a path in the sea. We walked through on dry ground. Like that comes over and over again. Um, so in that in that case, the way has to do with salvation, but like literal salvation. Like there was an enemy coming behind. They needed a way out. God made a way in the sea. Um, then another place. I'm just doing like bird's eye cruise over over the Bible here. Um, we can see roads and paths. They show up a lot in, wisdom, in the wisdom literature, kind of in the middle middle of the Bible. Um, if you look at Proverbs, uh, we learn that wisdom isn't something abstract, like, oh, I'm a sage, like sitting on a mountain thinking about stuff. No, it's very practical. Um, and in the beginning of Proverbs, after some poetic, beautiful poetic descriptions about the way of wisdom, the path of the righteous, things like that, you get a really practical gritty anecdote about someone going the wrong way in chapter 7 the author says I noticed a youth who lacked judgment he was going down the street near the adulterous woman's corner walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading if you could read on the, the this youth story does not end well arrow in the liver kind of stuff yeah <laughs> read it if you don't know what I'm talking about um so walking, feet on the ground, it matters. It's real. Like, this is this is real-life stuff. Where you go literally matters and figuratively matters. Cruising, like, again, far, far along in the Bible, we see Jesus who comes and he says, I am the way. 
Um, and Karen Swallow Pryor does some, some reading of that, that image, Jesus saying he's the way. She says that we sometimes say, oh, yeah, yeah, that means that Jesus is the way or the means of getting to heaven. That's what he means when he says, I'm the way. And that's true. The way does have to do with salvation. Um, we need a way to escape the trouble that we're in, the trouble of sin in this case. Um, but here's what Pryor goes on to say. She says, Evangel- evangelicals tend to emphasize how Jesus is the way to something, but he is also the way, period. Jesus isn't only a means to something, he is an ultimate end. When Jesus invites us to follow him, it means more than just walking behind him on the road towards a destination. Jesus invites us to adopt his way and his ways. The way has to, the way also has to do with wisdom, with practical down-to-earth life, with being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the way through the sea, and Jesus is also the way of wisdom. And there's so much else we could add to that pile of understanding this idea of walk. That's where we started. We walked all the way over here to the way. Um, the way that uh, Kevin Van Hooser kind of summarizes this, and he, he does a lot of work on the story of scripture being lived out. Um, but he says this. He says, scripture is the story that disciples live by. Creation, incarnation, trinity, and atonement are not abstractions to be thought, but meaningful patterns to be lived. The imagination helps disciples act out what is in Christ. That is the reality that is in Christ. Realities we can see and realities that we can't see. They're equally real. All right. So moving on to number three. How does the imagination help us recover attention and care. So the the testimony that I read earlier from J.T. Reeves um, is from a, a recent article from October 19th um, that he wrote for the Gospel Coalition, reflecting eight, eight months later on his experience at Asbury University in the spring of this year, 2023. I don't know if you remember, because a lot of news has happened since then, um, but... What was happening at Asbury in the spring of 2023, there was a spiritual awakening there at that university that continued for two weeks. Um, It's been called a revival. Uh, JT calls it an outpouring, so an experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the community in a special way. Um, And this is, he kind of gives his testimony about what happened. Um, He was a student at Wheaton College at the time, and he drove down with his friends to Kentucky to see what was happening at Asbury. And he was skeptical. Uh, Even after he got there, he writes, this doesn't feel as hyped as those TikToks you saw. Um, But gradually, over time, he describes an awakening towards Jesus in his own heart. And he's writing kind of, um, he's doing this sort of creative thing with the article, so he's writing in the second person, but he's talking about his own experience. He says, the face of Jesus Christ becomes a bit clearer And you and your friends look at each other, wondering why you hadn't noticed his irresistible beauty until now. The lover of your soul has made himself known. He stepped into your warp speed haze and took your hand. You're mesmerized by his words. You knew he was better, but you never gave him the time or attention to experience that knowing. The Asbury outpouring wasn't about mass conversion, mass repentance, or mass mass missions. 
It seems more a soft and sweet song to the seekers of God, an invitation for us to radically retrain our attention, our worship. And what strikes me about this testimony is how JT describes his encounter with Jesus in terms of beauty. What got his attention was a soft, sweet song, an invitation. He now wants to retrain his attention and his worship because his imagination has been captured by the beauty of Jesus. And he says this in so many words. He concludes his essay by, essay by saying, God changed our whole imagination. <laughs> Awareness of beauty awakens care and attention. And one of, one of Swallow Pryor's big takeaways in her book is just this. She says, what we can do with awareness and attention, intention, sorry, is immerse ourselves more deeply in the stories, images, and words that reflect what is good, true, and beautiful. Yes, scripture, but also the human application of scripture that expresses the fullness of its teaching. I'm reminded of, uh, in Isaiah, where it says, you will see the king in his beauty. Sometimes that revelation of the beauty of Jesus is just that. It's a revelation like what J.T. Reeves experienced. It's a gift from God, uh, from Jesus. But what, what Swallow Pryor is pointing out in her book is that we can, with awareness and intention, put ourselves in the way of seeing that goodness and truth and beauty. That's where I think the attention piece comes in. What can we do to put ourselves in the way of seeing the goodness and truth and beauty? Um, both around us and that ultimately points us to the beauty of Jesus. Okay, now I want to turn to to our final section here. Um, Van Hooser, in his uh, chapter, cites a statistic from some sociologist who wrote, apparently wrote this. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. So the title of this lecture is Baptized Imagination 5, Prophet, Poet, Seer, Sage. And I have to admit that I chose those words partly because they they sound really nice together. Um, But I've already mentioned the biblical prophets, and I think when we think about vision, of having renewed vision, the prophets are, are a good place to go. It's important to note that biblical prophets aren't, sometimes we think that they're just like predicting the future, that's their main job. They sometimes do do that, but... um, one of the ways scholars distinguish that is that they, they do some foretelling, foretelling the future, but they also do forth-telling, telling forth the truth of reality, present, past, future, kind of all together. Um, in this little book that I found really helpful, actually, uh, it's very readable, called The Prophet and His Message by Michael J. Williams, um, he describes, I think he's quoting someone else, but he describes the prophet's role like this. He says, The prophet looked deeply into the affairs of his day, and at the lessons of the past, and to the nature of Yahweh, then he was able to proclaim, his fallible human nature charged by the Spirit, what the outcome of the contemporary situation would be. So there's all those pieces involved. The affairs of his day, what's actually going on, the lessons of the past, and what he knows is the nature of God. Um, and, and we see this even in the way that God, when he gives a word to the prophets, God is bringing all those pieces together as well. Um, that's the work, the work of the Holy Spirit. So the prophetic vision doesn't just mean seeing the future. 
but it means seeing reality again in the light of God's revealed word, in the light of the lessons of the past, the nature of God. Um, and I think I think the Old Testament prophets were dealing with uh, crises not dissimilar to the crisis of imagination that we're talking about today. Um, they were facing a crisis of attentions attentions that were captive to idolatry, crisis of language, including the very word of God that was getting forgotten about or like lost in the back corner of the temple. It wasn't being taken seriously. They were looking at a crisis of integration of the word lived out. Maybe a more familiar way to talk about that is a crisis of obedience, hearing the word, but then not doing it. Um, and the solution to this crisis um, was what the prophets always called for was repentance. And that word just means turning around, turning back towards God and towards his covenant. And in the biblical story, we see over and over again that a time of reckoning always calls for a return to scripture and to obedience to scripture, to the covenant, whatever word you want to use in that in that place, but to God's word. Um, and there's a lot a lot of places in the Bible I could go to illustrate this. But I just want to read a couple of passages from Isaiah that talk about this, looking back in order to move forward, essentially. Um, And the first one is towards the beginning of the book in chapter 8. You might also notice that this just seems very relevant to our lives today. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to expound upon that, but just see if you notice anything. Um, But in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. So it sounds like Isaiah's contemporaries, they have a desire for vision. They're really scared about a lot of stuff. And they want to know, they want knowledge so that they can be free from this fear. But they're going for it to the wrong places. They're turning to witchcraft. Um, to conspiracy theories, things like that, um, that come from people who are afraid of everything except the Lord. And Isaiah says, what you need to do is return to the law and to the testimony. This is where the light is. Vision is to be found in the light. That's how we see. So return to the word of light, the word where the light is. Um, in another place, there's a really similar thing, Just but towards the end of Isaiah in chapter 51, 50 and 51, um, he says something similar. He says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourself with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Listen to me, all you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. The word 
is where there's light, not in the fabrications of our own technologies. That's what they were doing, making their little fires, making their little torches. Um, I don't have my little torch technology, but my little technology that does all of those things. Um, actually, I could, I could probably figure out how to start a fire with a cell phone, but I don't know. <laughs> not a good idea. Um, <laughs> not advised. But the word is where there's light, and that is the word that was revealed in the past. Look to the rock from which you were cut. We need to return to our sources. That's the call. And this pattern continues into the New Testament. The first Christian sermons that we see in Acts, um, they are looking back at Scripture. The Old Testament is what they had. And looking back at it with the light of Christ. Um, They're not like, here's a new, totally new thing you never heard before. They're like, actually, this follows from everything you've always heard. Um, Yeah, yeah. we see this in the letters of Paul as crises start to creep into the early church. He points them back to the gospel that they heard before, that they heard at the beginning, the word of Christ. Um, so I've been thinking about this way of seeing, interpreting, and, and proclaiming reality, the, the way that prophets, the prophets did this, um, as seeing with compound eyes. Uh, and I don't mean like a bug. There's tons of bugs in the house today because it's so warm. Um, I don't mean like that. There's like a whole science in that, but actually bugs with compound eyes actually can't see very clearly. So forget that part of the analogy. Um, (laughs) The prophetic vision integrates memory and wisdom and supernatural insight. It integrates the physical and the metaphysical, the temporal and the eternal. Um, All of these things are coming together in one message. Um, and and so I, I think of that as like seeing multiple things at once, different facets at once, compound eyes. Um, and if we if we wanted to use some technical theological words for this, you could say that a prophetic way of seeing is having an apocalyptic vision of reality, which includes eschatological reality. Two big words there. So the word apocalyptic literally means unveiling, seeing past the film, seeing past the curtain, like we already talked about. Um, and eschatological, it's hard for me to say that word, means to have to do with the last things, kind of the culmination of history, a perspective on the whole story of redemption, including its completion at the end of time that we haven't experienced yet. And this is actually the vision that we get from the Bible. Um, we see that whole story, and we see behind the scenes. We see God's perspective on things. So to see with compound eyes is to see with this kind of integrated vision. To see, I think, with the baptized eyes of the heart. <clears throat> Bear with me, we're almost done here. In this little book, which I've, I've relied on very heavily throughout this series, it's called Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. Um, Malcolm Geith says that the, the reason he wrote this book is that he wanted it to be a wake-up call for Christian artists to show how all of us might have a part to play in lifting the veil, removing the film of familiarity, opening our eyes and ears, and most of all, our hearts, not only to the loveliness and wonders of the world before us, but also to the one through whom all things were made and in whom they all hold together. Um, and I would say that my purpose in this, this series has been the same, but the only different with the difference that I want to issue a wake-up call for all Christians not just Christian artists. Because while some people do have a particular creative calling, which is wonderful and important, 
We are all called to be artists in living. And I think looking at the prophetic calling helps us see that, um, helps us imagine that, because the biblical vision of the prophet shows us that, yes, a prophet is, has a particular, there's a special person that's called a prophet, there's a special particular spiritual gift called prophecy that's for certain people, but it's also broader than that. Um, and we see that, like, all through scripture, actually, from very early on to the end. It's not like some new new thing. Um, in Numbers, where it talks about the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, we get a, a story of an, another time. Once again, Modus, Moses is overburdened by the whining people of Israel, and God gives him 70 leaders to help him, and he pours out his spirit in kind of a special one-time way on these leaders so that they can help Moses. And two of the leaders haven't come to this special meeting that's outside at the, at the tabernacle. Um, and they start prophesying because the spirits come on them in the camp. And there's a kerfuffle about this. And Joshua says, Moses, stop them. Like, they're prophesying in the camp. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And that wish of Moses's becomes a longing across the whole Old Testament until we get to the prophet Joel who predicts that there's a coming day of the Lord when God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And with the coming of Jesus, then that promise, that prediction becomes an imminent promise. Jesus promises his last, his last supper, his disciples at the last supper, that that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He actually says, it's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then right before he ascends, Jesus again promises, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So Moses' prayer, Joel's prediction, Jesus' promise, these all are fulfilled when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people at Pentecost. So all of us who have received power from the Holy Spirit, which is all believers, those who have, have received that power to be witnesses, have a prophetic calling in that sense. Um, Williams points out that the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it mirrors the pattern of how God commissions prophets in the Old Testament. And it includes this very important part that's part of the commissions of, of prophets, that God will be with them. He will be with them. He will be with us. He is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this calling is a calling to see with compound eyes, to allow the eyes of our hearts to be opened by the powers of the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit, and then to be witnesses, to bear witness, sorry, to what we have seen. We are witnesses, and then we bear witness. And this is this is a word, witness, uh, I think has, is another word that's been a little bit impoverished, maybe. Um, we think of it in quite a narrow way, maybe the act of telling this, someone the gospel, usually with a very particular set of words. Um, but as, as Swallow Pryor points out, a witness is something that you are. It's an identity. It's a whole life commission. Just like the Old Testament prophets were called to represent God and, and God's people at, with their whole beings, their whole lives. 
And even the verb to bear witness, which is, is to say something, suggests that a witness, that witness is something that you carry, something with weight, something solid. It's not just a little programmed speech, but it's the thing carried around and shared by someone who's seen something. So I think we can and we should pray for special outpourings of the Spirit, like like JT experienced at Asbury, where Jesus, in his kindness, poured out his Spirit in a way that recaptured hearts by revealing his beauty and his love. But I think we also must recognize and remember the baptism that we've already had. Joel's prediction of the Spirit poured out on all God's people, men and women, young and old, so that they see visions and dream dreams, that's for us. Jesus has poured out his spirit and we who believe have been doused in that stream but I think we also continue to stand in that stream the stream of the spirit the stream of God's people and his inspired word and here's where my analogy is going to break down we stand in the stream as we walk in the way (laughs) we walk in the stream I don't know sail in the stream you can take that where where that goes for you swim uh, in Jeremiah 6.16 this is where I'm going to end he says Jeremiah says this is what the Lord says stand at the crossroads and look ask for the ancient paths ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls a crisis a reckoning I think is a crossroads and as we pray for new vision for vision that changes culture I think a place to start looking is back to the ancient good path. And that's where I'm going to stop. And usually at this point, if you need to go, you're also welcome to, to head out. Um, if you need to go to bed. But uh, this is also a time for questions, for discussion. Um, i open it up to hear, hear from you. Yeah, Brandon. You can ask a question while I drink water. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks for the uh, lecture. Mm -hmm. Um, You may have answered this in a previous uh, installment of the series, so please direct me there Mm -hmm. for the answer. But uh, I'm curious if, I guess, the way that you're talking about imagination is a a kind of more active or passive thing. And I I guess what I mean by that is like uh, a more passive version of imagination would be like, you know, like visions that we like receive, right? Mm-hmm. Versus like something that we kind of like conjure and create. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of struck me. Well, one, one thing I keep in mind is like uh, it's interesting to me when I hear like fictional authors talk about when they like write characters and like it's almost like they're describing this thing that like exists outside of themselves versus mm-hmm. like somebody who like will like more kind of uh, actively direct the story and like make the characters do what they want. Um, it kind of strikes me that like. I feel like I more intuitively think of imagination as, like, a more active thing. But then when I think about, like, prophets and seeing and having things revealed, it feels like more of a, a mm-hmm. passive thing. So I don't know how much it matters, but it kind of just struck me that, like, those two feel slightly different to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's mysterious, and there's different ways. I mean, there's whole books about, like, what does that mean that, like, the word of the Lord came to 
Like, did he see it written down? Did he hear an audible voice? You know, what does that mean? So, yeah, I would direct you to, like, other resources. I'm not ready to just tell you all the answers of that right right now. Um, but there are people who have really looked at the details of that, and it, it's different. And it's not, like, one size fits all. This is how it always happens. Um, but there is there is a sense of agency in the prophet as well. Um, there's a call and there's a response. You know, Isaiah says, like, here I am, send me. Um, it's Isaiah, right? Or is that Jeremiah? I don't know. Those were the two that I was the two that I was really looking at, but uh, the big ones. Um, yeah. Um, so there's not a sense. There doesn't seem to be a sense in which like the prophets were like possessed and became like these automatons that God used to like write stuff down. Um, but it is mysterious, like how much was their own agency involved? This is like the question about the whole inspiration of scripture that was written by human authors. Um, so that's a much, much bigger question. But I think um, if we think about imagination as a faculty, that's how I've been thinking of it. So like rationality is a faculty that we have. Um, it can be exercised or, or not. Like you can just let it kind of sit there and atrophy. Um, and to some degree, you'll be using your, your reason and you'll be using your imagination just to function in the world, but it's something that can be developed, it's something that can be cultivated. Um, so in that sense, there is a very active part. And then it, it is something that, um, I mean, artistic people will talk about, like, they use their imagination to, like, solve problems, bring things together. Like, I think artistic people have more of a vocabulary to talk about what's going on. So like you were saying with with authors, um, but other other people who solve problems do this all the time. They use their imaginations all the time to, to bring, like it's, again, it's integration. It's bringing stuff together. Um, yeah. So that doesn't really totally answer your question, but hopefully it gives some some pieces to that. Yeah, Joshua. Just a, just a thought with that, too. Like, <laughs> I, um, yeah, like sometimes <clears throat> imagination is if uh, our imaginations are functioning almost like below below the radar of, yeah. of or, or, or like what we're like consciously like doing, like two people can walk into the same room, uh, like, like a homeless shelter, and interpret it. Like one can be like, look, these are these are lazy people who are just mooching off the system, and they just need to like, you know, get like get themselves in order. And another person can be like, look, these are people that are. A system has not worked for them. They're suffering, like, and both and um, like both of those interpretive acts are like instantaneous and kind of funded by or shaped by imaginations that have been shaped by stories mm-hmm. and encounters and n- news media or analysis. Like, but it just like happens so fast, mm-hmm. and it's like the imagination there is also. That's it's like both something that's been formed, but then something that um, I don't want to say it's passive, but it's it's just it's not like an active mm-hmm. thing. It's just like it's almost like the glasses you're wearing without realizing you're wearing glasses sometimes, mm-hmm. um, as it's like integrating and bringing things together. But and then yeah, I think your point about like yeah, reading the products, some of them are so different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of them are, I mean, they're all a little spooky, but they uh, they do speak in very different ways or go about things like in their own. Uh, they're still their own person, even though mm-hmm. they are 
they've received a word from the Lord and they speak kind of in, mm-hmm. in particular ways. Anyway, yeah. I was just a thought, not disagreeing, just like thinking about how it is hard to. Yeah, I think that's a helpful clarification, Joshua, because I think maybe, yeah, thinking in terms of active, is it active or passive, is maybe less helpful than, like, how conscious or or sub, subconscious is it, at, like, what level is it working? Yeah, and and I think some of the work that we've, that I was trying to point towards tonight and that some of these authors have done is to try and, like, bring it up to the level of consciousness of, like, oh, these are actually metaphors or these are stories that are informing how I'm seeing the world and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Autumn. Why do you think it's always easier for people to imagine fearful or scary or negative things than it is for them, even Christians or people in general, mm-hmm. to imagine things delightful or good or it's so much mm-hmm. easier for people to imagine all that could go wrong rather than to imagine all that God could do or might mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. The way that you ask me ask that question makes me wonder if you have some ideas. Do you have more that you want to say about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I just wonder what, where that, yeah, where that's coming from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot more effort for me to practice the discipline of imagining all that God might do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so much easier for me to visualize the things that go wrong. Yeah. But to to not just imagine what God might do, but to really visualize, mm-hmm. visual, visually imagine that. Yeah. Imagining, oh God, you know, God might do this in my life, or, or God, I might, I might get to know God in this way or that way. Mm-hmm. And, I think practicing delightful imagination is a lot more of a skill mm-hmm. that, or a discipline. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I mean, I guess that's why. Yeah. What would you say about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, I think a piece of it is that we do, like, we need the Holy Spirit to kind of break through the <laughs> the ceiling on our world, in a sense. Like, that's a result of the fall, mm-hmm. and that we, we so, like, we're so familiar with the way things can go wrong. Those are the images that are flashed at us all the time. Um, you know, if, if you watch, like, even a tiny bit of news, like, that's what you're going to see. Stuff that's burning is a lot more interesting than, like, a really great law got passed today, like... You can't really film that, right? So um, let's show, like, the car crash. Um, things like that. So it's we don't have as much food, I think, in some ways. It, and that's what, um, I think that's where that intention and awareness of putting ourselves in the way of the things that will inform us with the good and true and beautiful. Not shallow and sentimental, like, oh, I'm just going to look at, like, cute puppies or whatever. But, like, what is actually, like, the goodness underneath and the love of God that's underneath, um, all like in holding all of creation together. To see that, we have to we have to work harder, I think, and have more intention to to put ourselves in the way of that, so that that's what's filling filling our imaginations. And I think that's harder because it's not what's immediately accessible. It looks like a lot of people have ideas in response to this as well. I'm gonna come up here to Jen first. Well, it, it makes me think about like the story of Abraham and like his his discipleship process is in a lot of ways God training his imagination. That in the very very beginning, when God gives him all these promises, and then he's confronted with the possibility of starvation in the land, then it's immediately I have to move where there's food, and then it's immediately the Egyptians are going to see my wife and they're going to take they're going to kill me and take her. And the God said, I'm going to bless you. And what does killing me and taking her have to do with God blessing me? Nothing. It's mm-hmm. a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. 
But by the end, when God says, I want you to take your son whom you love and sacrifice him, then Hebrews says that Abraham imagined that God would raise him from the dead, mm-hmm. even though he'd never seen anything like that before, mm-hmm. and it had never happened. Mm-hmm. And like God was taking decades to train his imagination mm-hmm. by encounter with God as a person. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's a really good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben? Yeah, just um, just response to what you mentioned. I think it can have a lot to do with what we feed our imaginations. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know you, so I don't know if you're super into dark TV shows or whatever. But, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> but, but, but I do think that what we feed, you know, I've never thought it's exactly in the imagination, but just you know what we feed in ourselves is what grows stronger what we starve in ourselves is what grows weaker. <laughs> and if we think of this, you know, an imagination for the good, imagination for, for the potential of what God could do that's good and glorious and beautiful in our lives. Um, if we're never feeding that by, like you said, putting, our, putting ourselves in the way of, of God's word, but rather just kind of becoming enamored with all these interesting dark things. <laughs> I think it's, it's, I see in my own life, I, I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards kind of gritty TV shows, and so it's not, it ends up, if I, if I go overboard, it's really not that helpful for me, because I, I do, um, you know, it's, it's, which, which, there's a dog fight going on in me, which dog am I feeding? And that's the one that's going to win. <laughs> you know, which the one, the one that I'm not feeding is not going to win. And I've noticed that in myself. For sure. Yeah, this is not, not helping me to to think um, redemptively about my own life very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's maybe just a answer, but, mm-hmm. but um, it does have a lot to do with yeah, with what we're what we're exposing ourselves to, what we're feeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marty. Um, yeah, one thing is I think. There are we have an amazing, amazingly strong temperamental differences. So some people do tend to see the, the cup half full, and other people tend to see the cup half empty. So there, there's those individual temperamental differences. But then um, I think the media has has also. Let, I just remember reading. I think it was the book The Coddling of the American Mind, maybe. But it had an interesting analysis of. Um, this very well documented thing that there was this kidnapping of a child back, I don't even remember when it was, maybe it was in the 60s or I don't know when, late 70s or a child. The milk carton movement? Yeah, the milk carton movement of um, having pictures of children that have been kidnapped. And, but and there, those kidnappings, that, that was incredibly rare. A stranger kidnapping a child was incredibly rare. Much more likely to happen by divorced parent mm-hmm. trying to get the kid. But but it led to um, according to this this book and it's pretty well documented, it's just a huge um, upsurge in growth which has continued of fear, of um, of absurd fear of parents for their children's well being, overprotectiveness, actually mm-hmm. against all the evidence of what helps a child grow and develop having more freedom. Um, mm-hmm. climbing trees and risking falling down, but just leading to just this over over fear mm-hmm. of um, of the terrible things that could happen to your child. And it's just so interesting mm-hmm. that see 
tracing it back to a single child being kidnapped and the, the incredible media attention and mm-hmm. milk carton pictures and so on, which is yeah. which is skews the actual mm-hmm. actual the, the goodness skews you toward toward the danger and the evil and the bad mm-hmm. away from all the incredible potential goodness which is mostly there and, and now you have these you know maps and playgrounds of child fall, falls there. <laughs> All right, let's not get too far off track here. Um, Emily had her hand up. Yeah. <laughs> Not completely jailed as a thought, but to touch on both what you said about imagining things that could go wrong and the young man's testimony about demands on our attention. Mm -hmm. I think for, frankly, a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals, a lot of Americans, and especially the intersection of all three, the point of existence is to be right. Mm -hmm. So the point of being a Christian is to believe all the right things, to have all the theology nailed down, to do all the things we're supposed to, to say all the things we're supposed to, to be seen to be saying all the things we're supposed to, especially that. (laughs) So thinking about the ways things can go wrong is helpful because it helps us rule out everything we could do wrong, Mm -hmm. all the ways that we could fail to exist and believe and act correctly. Mm -hmm. Thinking about ways things could go right is a waste of effort. Because that's not helping us exist correctly. And I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with this, but I'm probably thinking about this because many reviews are coming up. But play off your, your comment about we use so many metaphors for time like we do for money. I think a lot of us think about our walk with God less like a road trip and more like a job. Mm-hmm. That there are performance metrics we have to mm-hmm. hit, that there are deliverables, that there are criteria, and that if we're not doing it right, we could stand to lose everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that might be a factor in why it's so hard for us to imagine a God who's big enough that that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think you're hitting on something that's a real feature of of imagination. I mean, I, I talk to people about that all the time, working here at Libri. Um People who have a real fear of like, but I'm going to do something wrong. Like something's going to be wrong about this. Or just like, I'm wrong. Like my existence is wrong. Weakness. <laughs> yeah, go listen to my other lecture, which you were here for, Emily. But um yeah, I think, and I think, um, thinking, like, yeah, what if we didn't think about, like, rules so we do it right, but tools so we do it well? Like, that's just a different, different playground, <laughs> um, different playing field. Um, yes, there are things that are right and wrong, but that's just a, that's a limiting, a limiting metric. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Um Kate, you had your hand up. Did you want to say something? Do you remember? 
Uh, <laughs> it's okay if you don't, but. <laughs> Maybe make something up. Imagine. It's not the same thing. Really Making stuff up in imagination <laughs> is not the same thing. See lecture one. Okay. <laughs> oh, I think when Ben was talking about like what you feed your mind mm-hmm. and even what you were saying is just like the idea of imagination being connected with hope. Mm-hmm. Cause, um, I remember studying it in psychology is how like this idea that grief and trauma and just kind of living in the world, you know, um, breaks down our imagination because it's like things don't go the way we want. People get hurt. People die. Um, are your jobs fall through, things fall through. And so it, like, actually takes real effort to kind of, like, fight against the undoing of our imagination, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe why like, kind of it's easier to imagine things going wrong is because mm-hmm. things do go wrong. And then that's, like, our brains just get stuck on that um, mm-hmm. and replay it. So it takes a lot of effort. And I think that's where, like, hope comes in is because it's really counterintuitive and has to be really grounded to actually pull our imaginations. I think that also has to do with, yeah, like something goes wrong and then that becomes the story. Like, oh, this is what happens. This is what always happens. Then easily, like, this is what happens so easily becomes like, this is what always happens, at least to me, right? Or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I think it's so important. Like, Malcolm Guy talks about, like, how to free yourself from analogies to have more than one. Um, it's important to have more than one story and in the sense of like other people who tell you other stories, stories from their lives. It's like getting, getting you to look out and realize like, actually they were looking for a job and they got the job. Maybe this doesn't, isn't what always happens, you know? Um, just like disrupting some of those stories and metaphors and things that we tell ourselves and get stuck in having community of people who are intentionally and actively doing this work. This is also something that doesn't just happen happen magically. It's that there's actually real work to cultivating the imagination. And um, uh, Kevin Van Hooser talks, talks about this. Um, he talks about, like, if baptism was what, like, what wakes us up, then discipleship is staying awake, the work of staying awake. Um, and uh, I, th- I think that's a helpful helpful I- image um, because it is so easy to fall asleep, not just in the sense of being, like, numbed out, but in the sense of being, like, in despair. I mean, and that was part of the d- definition of sloth isn't just that you're, like, lazy. It's that you're in despair, and that's why nothing matters. Um, and there's real... It's a reason it's a deadly sin, um, because it's just totally sucking, sucking life out of us. Do I see a hand over here? Yes. Yeah, Dad. Um, I'm reminded of a, a friend who spoke at a conference once, um, John Stumble, I think his name, and he, he had a debilitating illness, and he wrote a book about it, and um, I don't know if he said this in his talks or in the book, but he did me. He, he had a friend who would come and say, Man, John, it's like you got nailed by a truck. Man, you were just walking along and you got hit by a Mack truck. And he and he started to imagine like that's really what happened to me. And it was like that. But then he he 
he, he thought, that's not a helpful image. That's, that, I keep playing that in my mind. That's not good. Mm-hmm. And so he prayed that the Lord would give him a different image to think about his illness and mm-hmm. how, how it broke him. And, and so uh, the image of a potter taking mm-hmm. a pot and breaking it down and making it new was given to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we can actively ask the Spirit mm-hmm. to help us have that kind of image um, when we encounter things, too. If we have a bad image of it, to replace that with a mm-hmm. redeeming one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for that example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have any too insightful thoughts, but I just wanted to echo, I feel like, working in the hospital and also working in North Philly where we have a big gun violence and opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to a lot of people in, the, um, in that space and, and just nationally there's just like a lack of um, not like imaginaries, just like solutions and people feel stuck like people are in it and who are really well-meaning like just have a lack of hope um, in this area and imagination for solutions and it feels so very Mm-hmm. Um, stuck and so um, yeah I'm trying to think how you know would we be able to like even me for to be able to encourage my colleagues to have imagination mm-hmm. for um, a way out yeah. in this situation I feel like sometimes too like we, know, we don't all like, act on like an international national level like, mm-hmm. that's why sometimes like things like climate change feel impossible to like Mm-hmm. Because we don't work in an international level, but we can, we broke it down to like our neighborhood or, you know, our mm-hmm. county, like those are like ways that we act. We all have influence, we're all not like the president. So I feel like one um, couple we know in North Philly, they're just thinking about like their street. They like moved into Kensington and they're like, they're just like, we're just cleaning up the abandoned lot outside their house because they have a one year
you know, thinking about pathologies and all that stuff, we like lose the ability to be imaginative. Mm -hmm. We're like, this is, you know, the process for this disease. And that's mm -hmm. how we're like, taught. And um, right. we definitely, like, maybe that's why we don't have universal health <laughs> yeah, I think um, what what you just said, Vivian, made me think about um, think about the idea of of a witness. Because I think of we kind of have a shrunken view of like what witnessing is. We think we need a platform to witness from. I mean, like in a courtroom, the witness is like called to the stand, so we need a stand, like a place from which we can speak out. But if a witness is something that we are, and not just like certain words that we say um if it's if a witness is something we bear that we like carry with us wherever we go i wonder if that if understanding in that way would help us think think on that more local scale better um instead of thinking like well i don't have like a platform so i guess i don't, you don't have a, like anything to say or anything to help with here um but to think actually like i just i what have I seen? You know, like, what have I seen of God's redemptive work in my life? And if I haven't, then that's something to ask the Spirit for. Like, I mean, maybe you have never had that experience. Maybe you're like, I don't know what she's talking about. Like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is. Whatever. Like, maybe you've never encountered Jesus in that way. That's something that you're allowed to ask for. You're like, God, are you even there? Like, that's a great place to start. Because then once you've started to see that and, and people who've been walking with God for a long time will say that they've seen the faithfulness of the Lord and they're witnesses of that in their lives. Um, I think I think we need to think about that. Like, what have I seen that I can bear witness to and that I carry with me that I've, I've witnessed? And that's why I think memory is so important. It's such an important part of imagination as well, actually. So having a good memory, a good collective memory, a good ability to look back. And we see this modeled in scripture all the time, the poets in scripture all the time saying like, remember this thing from the past. And we need other people to help us do that. Yeah, Ben. Just thinking in response to what you're saying, Vivian, I think sometimes our imaginations aren't up to the task of envisioning like a holistic solution to big systemic problems like what you're witnessing every day, like clear city violence and like how in the world do you, as one doctor in the midst of that world, Envision something redemptive in the moment there. Um, and, and in a sense, it's, it may be beyond us sometimes, but what you can do, and I like what you said about your, your neighbors, because you you have to tend to your own to your own self in terms of your um, finding things that, that are a source of delight. Not, a, not in a way that's an escape from the reality that you're dealing with every day, but in a, in a way that um, acknowledges your own need for that to, to sustain what you're doing over here. It may have nothing to do with the work you're doing. It may not be a glimmer of hope for gang violence in Philadelphia, but it may be, I, I need to have some input of delight into me to, in order to be strong enough to do this over here. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Change where you are, but I don't. Yeah, I, 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 I,
that measure that could be very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, as you see, some gun victim, after gun victim come through the emergency rooms, that you may need to seek that the sources of hope and delight and um, you know, places you know, mm-hmm. as a way of equipping yourself to, mm-hmm. to, to keep on doing really important work. Marty? Um, it just occurred to me um, that if it, if it would be helpful to try to apply what Jesus says about the kingdom um, being the kingdom in his coming, he talked about the kingdom is here because he's mm-hmm. here because he's the king, but the kingdom is not yet, not fully mm-hmm. here. But the idea of the, king, the, the kingdom being the now and the not yet. Mm-hmm. But I was, because I've just been reading in Matthew and and it just struck me that his parable of the mustard seed, mm-hmm. this tiny mustard seed, which then grows to be this big tree and feeds birds and houses birds and so on. But it, it might it might just help us, I don't know, it might help me, I haven't thought of this before, to see the small things, the small good things, mm-hmm. to look for the small good things, the local good things, and see them as signs of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. This, this is the, the kingdom is already... Jesus said the kingdom's already here. Things could be way, way, way worse. Mm-hmm. And things have been way worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to mm-hmm. and to sort of acknowledge it, Jesus, this this is your this is your work. Um, mm-hmm. works of beauty. And, and actually there's very interesting research on the kind of thing your neighbors are doing that that when people do that in it, in the inner city, when they take a, a lot filled with broken glass and stuff and beautify it, it actually does change mm-hmm. It actually changes the community, changes the people, and mm-hmm. it gives hope to all sorts of people. And mm-hmm. other people start mm-hmm. growing geraniums in their flower box. It makes a difference. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It just occurred to me that, that it would help me anyway yeah. to start seeing these positive things as mm-hmm. as this is what Jesus meant. That the kingdom is already here, but not fully. Mm-hmm. But there's signs of it, and we need to look for the look for the signs of it and acknowledge it. Yeah. I, I was also just thinking of a quick comment to your, I'm not sure I know your name. Emily? Your comment about living mm-hmm. trying to live by the rules mm-hmm. is that um, we need a robust picture of vision of grace. Mm-hmm. That we're, that we are, none of us can live by the rules. Mm-hmm. None of us ever have the right motives. I mean, all the right motives. You may have some of the right motives, but we're, we're actually never going to get there. We never have been there. We are, we are completely bathed in the grace of God. Um, mm-hmm. That it's our only hope, and it's mm-hmm. it's what gives us the motive to want to be, do better. And and but just to acknowledge, I'm I'm accepted by grace. I'm beloved mm-hmm. by grace. God looks at me and sees the beauty of Jesus. I can't believe it. I look in the mirror. I don't see that. Mm-hmm. And I look at how I behave. I don't, but he but he does. And so to mm-hmm. to just underscore and remind ourselves all the time of this amazing grace that we. Yeah. Believe in, we stand in, we mm-hmm. live in, and we're never going to get all the rules right. You know, that <laughs> it just aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Thank God for His grace, His mm-hmm. mercy. Uh, what you said, Marty, earlier, the first part of your comment about um, the mustard seed, I think that's another thing. Like, have mustard seeds. Like, I think that's something that can, can become an abstraction. Yeah. I think, this is just my opinion, but. I think every Christian should try to learn to grow something yeah. from a seed. 
And um, even if you're like, oh, I, I kill like cactuses and they don't even need any care. Um, cactuses, you don't grow from a seed. And I mean, you could, in theory, grow from a seed. I guess they must at some point. But it's not really how we get them usually. But like something, like try to grow a sunflower, whatever it is. That process is incredibly helpful. Like it has been for me. I haven't been a gardener for very long, basically since I came to Liberty. Um I had lots of experience with gardens, but my mom will tell you that wasn't usually where I was in her garden with her. Um, but now I have I have flower beds that I'm responsible for. So, like, once I've pl- I planted seeds, like, it was so much fun to like watch, and also like, I fuss and worry about them so much. <laughs> um, it's absurd, but it's given me a whole new perspective on like what is what are all these like images of things growing in the Bible about? Like actually re-grounding me so they're not like this like. Oh yes, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Mustard seed is tiny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's like the application yeah. point. No, Grow a plant. <laughs> yeah, I had a friend who first on that a friend who said he thinks his pastor loves to grow flowers because it's something where you always know if you plant it and you water it, God will make it grow. And mm-hmm. The people he works with, that's not always. <laughs> Obvious. There's not always fruit being born. Um, and then I just wanted to say I appreciated what you said about having multiple stories mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves. And just as you were talking about recovering language means evaluating the stories that fill our minds. Mm-hmm. I think the one about um, seeing our bodies as computers or as machines mm-hmm. is really, I, I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, There's a whole sure, industry like, of biohacking, like take a cold shower when you first wake up, then inputs and outputs, mm-hmm. just like optimizing your mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. And it can be helpful for like medicine and stuff, but if that's the only story I'm telling myself mm-hmm. about my body, that's mm-hmm. really dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a really good example too. Um, part three of the series is all about story and this, like having multiple stories, but there's also the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk a lot about that there, like the true story of God's re- of of creation and fall and redemption and consummation, the true story of God's work in the world, that there's lots of ways that story can be told to us and parts of it. And we can cultivate an imagination to see that that story as reality. Um, and I'm not saying that in a way to mean that, like, that story is not reality and we'll make it re- like we'll make it reality by imagining it <laughs> by imagining the reality that that story represents. Um, yeah. Anyway, I gave a whole lecture on that, so I'm not going to repeat that right now. <laughs> Dick, did you have your hand up? Um, so it touches on a number of things. Yeah, no worries. Just seems to me there's two great pillars. There's lots of pillars underneath the Christian faith, but this faith, which has got to be very positive, it's in a good God, a God who loves us, mm-hmm. a God who has plans for us, a God whose kingdom we are part of, and it's going to be something good and amazing. That he accomplishes through us. Then there's the fallen world mm-hmm. and the fact that it's broken and bent and, and twisted and uh, it's all about it, uh, not going to work out the way we imagine it to in the Lego set. And so I think we all have to take these two, live with these two realities and others mm-hmm. as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But temperament has a lot to do with Not everybody is, has the problem of. Yeah. Catastrophizing everything, you know, uh, which is an interesting word, uh, because it's a, it's a it's a tremendous temptation for certain people 
is to just think only catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, only when awful, awful things ought to happen. Some people are sentimental and can't ever believe anything could go wrong, uh, even some Christians. And so we're off on the wrong side. So we have to know ourselves and what we need to hear mm-hmm. and, not, and not hear uh, mm-hmm. to see how it goes on. And, and uh, I, when Ben spoke, I thought of it, and, and he spoke. There's a guy who was here years ago as a physician, a pneumatologist in Chicago, working in the slums in Chicago, and just being driven to absolute the end of his wits because of exhaustion and so on. And when he was here, actually, he was in the process of deciding to get married and all sorts of complicated things. But, but he decided, he decided, I've got to, I, my vision, my, what God's calling me to is to work with these people, but I cannot do it and live among them. I've got to move away, and we've got to move outside, so I'm a few miles away from the slum setting in order to do what I'm doing. Uh, and that was his decision, and that has worked out correspondingly for years. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really worked well for him. He's kept right on uh, and had an unbelievable time, of course, with COVID. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it, but it especially. Uh, but, uh, it's enabled him to we, do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Taking, giving himself a, some space and a rest, especially if able to have a family, uh, uh, really helped him keep on doing the work that mm-hmm. he was doing. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's so different with different people. Mm-hmm. Let me throw out one more thing. Kierkegaard had some interesting guy. I ran across this doing a lot of work on cynicism. Uh, it says everybody, everybody wants to be right and nobody wants to be wrong about themselves, about what's going on, about other people, and so on. And he says, but people would much rather be wrong in certain ways than others. Uh, and he said, you really don't want to be wrong thinking well of someone and then they turn out badly. Mm-hmm. And we, we, that, that's, that's horrible because then we're, we're exposed to being naive, sentimental, mm-hmm. and so on. We don't think anything like as bad. If we think evil of something, mm-hmm. say, if we think badly of people mm-hmm. and we turn out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we turn out to be wonderful. We're not anywhere near as hard on ourselves if we're wrong in that way. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just interesting to see mm-hmm. what who we are and what we're, what we're, what our temperaments are. Mm-hmm. He was speaking for all of Denmark at the time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I don't know where that We'd rather be, we'd rather be, we'd rather be, we'd rather be, rather be mean, mean than stupid. Yeah. We'd rather be simple yeah. than wrong. Yeah. 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 Not ever be, ever be considered wrong. There's all sorts of reasons for it. It's dangerous to be hopeful. Hopeful is a dangerous thing. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Dick, I think with your initial comment, comment, I think it, yeah, thinking about temperament and then what your temptations are as a result of that temp- temperament, that's an important thing to be aware of. And I think being aware of, like, the images and metaphors and stories that we fall back to um, is an important way of starting to realize that, like, oh, this is like a habit, and I need to be woken up from this habit of habit of mind um, to actually let some real real truth in and real reality and real beauty in um, yeah there's a lot a lot more we could say I can't tell you how many things did not make it into this lecture um, so uh, thank you all and I'm going to call it we can all go to bed <laughs>